if you could go back to that day in the emergency room, what advice would you give yourself as to how to approach the next several years of your life to make it as bearable as possible given the unfortunate circumstances that are starting then? Oh, I think I would just say hold on because it is going to be a crazy ride. I think I would encourage myself to just be nice to myself because I think that through a lot of that, I was probably my own worst enemy and having everything perfect and organized and I got a grasp on everything and I'm handling it all and I'm doing it all and everything is okay. You know, everything is in place and it's okay. We're going to do this and we're going to get this kid through treatment and then we're going to be done and we're going to just like my plan. And that's the thing with when things happen like that, it's really out of your control. But I think that I would just try to be less critical, more kind, just try to roll with the punches. That was Kelly Dupes, and this is the Journey Through Life podcast. I'm Justin Barton, the host of this podcast, and I'm really grateful to have you joining and listening in on this powerful episode in which Kelly shares the influence of very strong women in her life and how that has carried her through her ups and her downs and the trials that she's had in her life so far. Now, the Journey Through Life podcast is something that has evolved podcast. I still host the podcast, and the general theme of it is pretty similar. I talk to people who have great life experiences, struggles, victories, and have learned life's lessons and are willing to share those lessons with me and the listening audience. The goal of the Journey Through Life podcast is to allow each of us to learn these lessons and hopefully apply them into our lives to make ourselves a little bit better of a person and also learn from the struggles of others so that if and when we find ourselves in similar places as those with whom I'm conversing, we will have perhaps additional tools within our reach where we can perhaps get through those trials a little bit easier than otherwise we would have. Now, one thing that I'm really excited about and grateful for is that the Journey Through Life podcast has recently formed a relationship with a great company that fits perfectly with our theme. A Life Untold is a company that helps absolutely anyone turn their life story into a beautifully designed hardcover book. Their process is designed to be easy for everyone. All you have to do is complete an interview with thought-provoking questions about your life. You can either do that online or get one of their biographers to interview you live over the phone. After the interview is complete, A Life Untold takes over and designs, prints, and delivers your life story as a hardcover book to your door. It makes for a great gift to a loved one in your life, or will be a great project to do on your own. Either way, this life story, bound in a printed book, is something that your family will treasure for generations. I'm grateful to announce that listeners of the Journey Through Life podcast will save 10% on all orders by using the code JUSTIN at checkout. That's Justin, J-U-S-T-I-N. You can find all the details on their website at www.alifeuntold.com. Remember to use the promo code Justin when checking out at alifeuntold.com to save 10%. Oops. 
in my life and recall some of the influences of very strong women in my own life after talking with Kelly. And I think that you will also come to appreciate just a little bit more the role of strong women in your life. Now, before you sit back and enjoy this conversation with Kelly Dupes, I want to invite you to stick around at the end of this podcast to listen to a short project that I'm going to be adding to some of these podcasts. It's something that I am going to call In Their Own Words. It will be just a short journal entry or a short experience that was written by the hand of the person who has passed away. And I'm really excited to be able to share a story from my grandfather's life in this first foray into the segment In Their Own Words. Now, stay tuned and listen and enjoy this conversation with Kelly Dupes. Kelly, I've, I've known you now for um, over 10 years. Yeah. You know, we, we've done some work together in the past, but tell me a little bit about who you are, where you came from early in life. Oh, wow. Okay. So um, I grew up in a small town uh, called what was a small town called Parker, Colorado, outside of Denver. Mm-hmm. And um, I just had a pretty um, idyllic growing up, um, you know, fabulous parents, a brother, a dog, um, small community with lots of kids. And um, it just was very ideal. So, so as you look back at that, were there any mm, incidents or trials that you had as a child that, or was it just Pollyanna and and sunshine and rainbows? <laughs> I think it was pretty carefree. Yeah. You know, looking back now and after going to college and seeing what was out there in the world, I really recognized um, how blissful it was, and um, meeting people who didn't maybe have the opportunities that I had or the um, family support that I had. Yeah, it just was, it seems pretty simple. We were very busy. We were always on the go, involved in sports and activities. And um, my parents both were super hardworking so that we could, you know, have nice things and do nice things. And yeah, I have one younger brother he lives in San Diego now and he's married and he has two boys. And so I'm an aunt and that's fun. So as you look back, who is a, a relative, not necessarily a mother or father at this point, maybe a grandparent, aunt or uncle who had some, had some influence in your life? Yeah. Um, I would have to say that it was definitely the women Um, I come from a long line of very strong, um, independent, working my grandmother, my aunt, um, my mom, having them, you know, in my life and watching them balance careers and family. And um, it was, it set the bar really high, (laughs) you know, and they made it look so easy. So I um, talk to my mom all the time now. And I'm just like, how did you make that look so easy? Because this feels really, really hard. Mm. What's a, a, an example of maybe something that you're like, man, this is really hard, but you know, my mom or my grandmother or somebody made it look so easy. Oh, I, I think, so I think just day-to-day life, um, 
you know, I always remember my mom being home in the afternoon to when we got off of school because she she went to work early and um, she just seemed to do it all. You know, she'd come home, do dinner, do laundry, do dishes, probably barely get any sleep and then get up and do it again. And, you know, I work full time and um, I have a really helpful husband and I think we have a good partnership and my dad did a lot too. So I saw a true teamwork. I think, I think that people, again, like once I got out of that little bubble and I see that that's not how everybody had it, you really gain an appreciation for it. And, um, and I think I carried that into my own life and, um, knowing what I want. Um, but also recognizing like, this is really hard. And when I go back and I talk to my mom about it now, you know, she's like, yeah, it was hard. And, but you do it. And you, and I fortunately have her to encourage me and, and, um, my aunt and, you know, just everybody in my family, basically. Hmm. So, so tell me a story. Um, maybe you, you mentioned your aunt just there. Tell me a story that you have with your aunt that kind of, as you look back when this is something that I remember and it had a, you know, an effect on me then and maybe carrying forward to even now. Yeah. So my aunt um, grew up, you know, I grew up with her being close in Colorado with me. Um, and so she was kind of like a second mom and she, um, was a CPA and then I believe, a um, CFO for a pretty big company and was very successful and, but still, you know, took care of her, takes care of herself and, um, is fun and likes to do things and is very active. And so I think that I just had really great role models with women, um, achieving goals and, my grandmother was a single mom when, um, when, you know, there weren't, when people weren't getting divorced and, um, being single moms. And so that was really influential as well to, to look back and, and just see how strong these women are. I have a, um, my mom has another sister who lives in California and, and so it's just fun to, you know, now I'm really recognizing the importance of a family and drawing together all of our cousins because we're pretty small, but it's fun to, to have get togethers and, um, you know, we have some age gaps, but it's really just at the heart of, as I get older, what I want and what I want for my kids and I want my kids to connect with my brother's kids and, and, you know, I'm in heaven when they all get to be together. Yeah, well, that's really neat. Uh, yeah, the family dynamic is so important. I've I had lots of experiences in my life with cousins, and and I had large, large extended family. So I had lots of cousins, and we did things together as when I was younger a lot. And those had some really cool influences. So it's it's neat to hear a little bit of those experiences that you've had. Um, now, as 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 we've talked so far, it sounds like everything was really pretty smooth. And- <laughs> You know, things were good as you were growing up and, and you went to school, became a professional. What do you do for a living? So um, I'm an occupational therapist and I actually um, work in a uh, neonatal intensive care. So I'm a neonatal therapist Mm. right now. Very neat. And I know you've done several things in occupational therapy. 
um, in different areas and, and now you're working neonatal that that's exciting. What, what is most rewarding about that? Uh, what you're doing now? Uh, so much. Um, you know, I started in the schools and doing therapy with children, um, preschool through high school who had different types of, um, physical and developmental disabilities, intellectual disabilities. And, um, I saw a lot of kids with learning disabilities or that maybe had exposure to drugs as infants, um, kids with down syndrome and just a variety of things that I've seen. But because I started at age three and up, that was my focus. And so then I, then I went to Phoenix Children's Hospital where I was looking at more of the um, medical side of things. So I was in an acute care setting. And so I'm helping them more physically recover um, from an illness or an accident and not a lot of babies there either. So then I had an opportunity to um, go to the, um, a pretty large, we're a 65 bed unit here in Phoenix. So it's, it's infants that I'm seeing anywhere born from 24 weeks and above. And I um, have had a, a large interest in what is a, a program that we're developing for um, infants that have been exposed to different substances with the opioid epidemic here, you know, it's a big, it's a big area of growing practice, unfortunately. Um, so going back and then getting to see these infants from day one, it just triggers everything with my, with my school age kids that I've seen. And I think it's given me a good perspective um, because I know what they're at risk for. And I, and I know what's typical development, what's not typical development. And so it's really cool to see these, you know, infants that um, maybe we, we have quite a few babies that we've had that have had Down syndrome. And so getting to see what their trajectory is going to look like and starting with their parents from day one and getting them to trust therapy and plugged into therapy, because I know what an important um, part of their life that's going to become. And so it's just been really cool. I feel like it's kind of been full circle. The the schools was just kind of getting not as fun for me. Um, it seemed like it was more about kind of what the parents wanted or, you know, not so much child directed and having to interact with a lot of lawyers and advocates. And, and in the NICU, I feel like it's truly about what's best for the infant. And, you know, all working environments have their pros and cons, but um, I do a lot of family education which is awesome, and um, just trying to give these, you know, infants the best start. And it's pretty funny because I was asking um, my kids this morning if they knew what I did, and um, my oldest said, "Well, yeah, you hold babies all day." And so I'm like, <laughs> "Okay, yeah, I do get to do that." So that's kind of where where that led me. Yeah, and and I think you've shared a little bit of this, and and uh, you get to hold babies all day. But for for most people, when they hear I'm an occupational therapist, they immediately go, oh, you help people get jobs or, you know, something like that. What does an occupational therapist do? <laughs> Correct. And even when I walk into the NICU, the parents will say, I do not need a job. My child does not need a job. 
And so I, I do have to explain it. And so basically what an occupational therapist does is support all individuals of any age range um, to live independently. And so I think that that's why it's kind of hard for people to understand what we do because there's so many different practice areas, so many different settings and, and all stages of life that we're supporting. So if you were working maybe with a geriatric population, you would be supporting self-care skills or getting dressed. If somebody has a stroke, um, helping them learn how to do bathroom transfers, um, eat again independently. And um, yeah, so just actually, you know, and depending on the life, what your job is in your lifespan, like children, their job is playing. So we want to help them play or learn. And when they're really young, like the babies that I see, we're basically supporting their their motor skills, their sensory motor skills. So um, there's a lot of crossover with, we might do a lot of the same things that a physical therapist might do or a developmental specialist at that age. So, I, but I think it's definitely becoming more well-known now, which is really cool. And uh, people, I don't have to explain it as much. Right. So what is a, and, and, and I'm going to go back to where I was going initially, but I want to hit on this for just a second. What is an experience you've had with a, an individual child, whether it's an infant or an older child that you have worked with, obviously use, uh, being anonymous here to, to protect all you know, HIPAA rules and everything, where you've been able to watch this, this really cool development happen because of the therapeutic services that you're able to provide there? Oh man, you know, there's, there's so many, I had a couple really cool, um, medically complex cases while I was at Phoenix Children's Hospital. And when I was in the, um, the intensive care unit, we got often kids that had head injuries from maybe, um, an ATV accident or, there was one child who young adult who fell out of a roller coaster into water and was it would they were unsure about you know how long he was under what the extent of his injury was but watching somebody I would say with a brain injury go through all of the stages um, because it's it's really scary and obviously you know, parents want answers and they, they want a timeline for when things are going to happen. And, you know, so there's all the different stages, they'll get, get agitated and inappropriate. And so this, uh, there's been a couple times when I've been in the room working with a speech therapist, because a lot of times we'll co-treat or a physical therapist where um, they have been awake but not really alert and speaking and they'll speak for the first time. Mm. And the, the family is like, it, it's just really awesome to be able to facilitate that because it's very emotional. And, um, you know, when you, I, I just, I can't even imagine that, but so that's super cool. Those are days when I go home and I'm like, wow, that was awesome. And you give, you know, there's hope and the family has hope and that the person is going to recover Mm-hmm. and live a pretty awesome life you know so it is it's it's really pretty inspiring the the hard part about that is though also at the same time being in the um, ICU there's a lot of progress obviously that happens once they get out of the ICU and then into outpatient 
And it's cool to be able to see them in outpatient or in rehab. But I feel like just when we're starting to make progress or they're getting stable, you know, they get to move on to a different therapist. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't get to, sometimes you don't get to see it all the way through to the end. Correct. Now I want to go back. So, so you, as, as I started going down this path a little bit, you, it looks like your childhood and your young adult and even into college, things kind of rolled along fairly smoothly in comparison to with, you know, what you have encountered treating people through your, through your work and even as an adult. So tell me, when was the wall where you went, you know what, life really isn't always this easy. What, what happened in, in your life to, to show you that? <laughs> so when I went to Colorado State, um, I met my husband pretty immediately who would end up being my husband. And he is uh, from a small town in Northeastern Colorado. And he would kind of make fun of me. And he calls where I'm from the land of magical vacations. And, and so, well, anyway, so yes, I would, everything was kind of just bliss. And even in college, so we, we dated for five years and then we got married and then we waited for five years and we had our oldest son, Ethan, who's now 13. And uh, I was very sick with that pregnancy and like, the entire time. And it was really, really hard. It was horrible. And I just thought it was going to be this beautiful thing. So we waited another five years before we had our second son. And we weren't sure that we were going to have any more because I was so sick. Mm-hmm. And they said that I would likely be sick if I got pregnant again. Five years later, so we just joke we're on like this five-year plan because everything's done in fives. So we are doing our thing and and we're both working and we um, bought a house and uh, our families both came out here. And so it was really awesome because uh, we had a lot of support close. And so then Jack, when my son was one, um, my youngest, he started being sick really often, like with a cold, um, that just, he just never seemed to be well. And I just chalked it up to that. He was in daycare, um, and that happens. So I kept taking him into the doctor and they're like, no, no, he's fine. It's just a cold. It's just a virus. So this happened for about three months where he was pretty continuously sick. And, um, I'll never forget it. It was on the last day of my Christmas break where we were all going to be going back to school. And he was in the shower with my husband and he started peeing blood. Mm. And I was so fed up at this time and probably a little bit in denial, but I was just like, I'm sure he has a urinary tract infection and I really don't want to take him in again. So I was like, well, okay, I'm going to call the nurse practitioner. And I call her and I'm like, look, I've been in there, you know, like three times a week for three months. And he's just always been sent home. And now this happened. And I'm sure it's a a UTI. Can you call in some antibiotics, you know, to the store and I'll go pick them up. And she said, oh, you better come in. So I had my grocery list and I um, was like, fine. I was really super irritated actually to have to do that again. Um, And I we, we went there and I could tell that, I mean, I felt like the doctor didn't really believe me, you know, because she was like, blood, that's so weird. That's super uncommon. 
boys don't really get UTIs at this age. And, mm-hmm. um, and so she opened his diaper cause he was wearing diapers at the time. Mm-hmm. And there was a huge clot of blood mm. and it had only, uh, happened. We'd only seen this the one other time. Mm. So, um, it, it just was obviously pretty alarming and kind of bizarre. And I still didn't really even know what to think of it and being in the medical field myself. Right. Um, but I still was just like, this is not, I'm just, I need to go to the store and pick up a prescription and then and do my grocery shopping and then I'll be home. Mm-hmm. So she, the doctor, <laughs> I think was a little panicked herself. She went out and said, I'm going to go talk to a colleague. And she came back two minutes later and she said, you guys uh, need to go to PCH. We called them. They know you're coming and uh, we need to have this checked out. So Mm. we go to PCH and we spend Phoenix Children's Hospital. Yes. Yes. And uh, we spend all day in the uh, ER and they're not letting him eat or drink anything. And I didn't let him have anything before we went because mm. I thought we were just going to go to the store and come home. So he's fussy and crying and he's one and he hasn't eaten anything and he hasn't drinking anything and he's sick. And they said, okay, we need you to do to go for an ultrasound. So we go to do an ultrasound and he's laying there and it takes about 40 minutes. And, uh, I'm talking to the ultrasound tech and um, we're conversating and, and she had been looking at me. And then there was a point where she stopped looking at me. We switched to a different side and she stopped looking at me and she said, so why are, what brought you guys in? And I kind of knew at that point that they had seen something on the ultrasound. Mm. So we go back to the ER And, um, I think they were having a really busy day there and there was a resident who popped her head in and said, you're going to need to be admitted. They saw something on the ultrasound and then left. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So the nurse is standing there and I could tell she was kind of a seasoned nurse. And, and I said, uh, do I need to call my husband? Like our are we going to be here for a bit? Cause that kind of, I don't know what that just meant, but it doesn't sound good. Mm-hmm. So she said, yes, she said, yes, go ahead and call him. So at this point I'm still like, I'm sure it's nothing. You know, I call him. I said, you know, I'm, they, they want us to do this. I'm sure it's nothing. Go ahead go home, you know, get Ethan or other son. And, and he's like, no, I'm coming over there. So then we got admitted and they did a uh, CT scan and he had a massive tumor mm. on his kidney called Wilms tumor. And he was um, diagnosed, they diagnosed it after surgery. So we had to wait to get surgery because at this point he did, was testing positive for RSV and pneumonia. Mm. And uh, that was probably the longest week of my life. And then um, they did surgery and he had kidney cancer. Mm. So they uh, removed the tumor and then they can do the pathology on it. Mm-hmm. And so what he had was a type of um, cancer called Wilms tumor. And it has a very, uh, generally a very great prognosis. 
I think, um, 80% five-year mm. survival rate. Mm-hmm. And his was the subtype that is um, really aggressive, and it's called diffuse anaplastic. Mm. And so uh, he got a lot of chemo and radiation, and uh, that was the beginning of our new life. Did, did they have to take his kidney when they did all this too? They did. They had to take his kidney. Um, so he has one kidney mm-hmm. that we're, you know, guarding with our life right, now. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so you ran into this, into quote unquote real life that nobody ever wants to run into kind of, uh, kind of at a full, at a high rate of speed and it just kind of slapped you in the head, huh? Yeah. So for months, um, for a long time, I mean, you guys were going through chemo and radiation and all sorts of things. Tell me how you survived during those months. You mentioned earlier the strong women in your life that that did amazing things. And I'm sure during this time you didn't feel that way. But looking back, do you see how you were strengthened and able to get through those periods? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't think, I know 100% that I would not even be here to be talking to you right now if we didn't have our, our family support. And our friends that um, we we live in our small little subsection of Phoenix called Awatuki. And it's a really tight knit community. And when Jack got diagnosed, I just feel like everybody just kind of surrounded us and saved us and stepped up and took over. And I, it just, it was, it was really awesome having both of our parents here and, um, you know, siblings that just were, were ready to go to battle. You know, when we, after we got, discharged from the hospital the first time and we were starting to go back to get our plans hit for chemo and all of that I remember we had like we had like 12 people in this really small room and the poor oncologist opened the door and he was like hi wow. we were like, <laughs> like, yeah, this is us this is our crew and uh, we're gonna do this so I think that um, having that support is key and that was one thing that I really thought about having the experience with, um, with kids in the schools. I worked with, um, kids who had severe autism Mm -hmm. and, you know, the divorce rate is super high and the family stress is just incredible. And, you know, here we were and people were like making us dinners and, um, having our house clean. So it was nice and clean for him. And, and I had kind of this guilt because I was like, you know, these parents are living with really challenging things every day and nobody's making them dinner. And, mm. you know, it just was, it was, it's very humbling to mm. accept help and support on that level. Um, because I do think that, I, you know, when you look at the line of women in my family, it's just like, well, we just do it and we, mm. and, they, and it is, it's effortless and, and they're just it seems so strong all the time. And I wanted to be that. And I think human nature is you, you, it's kind of adrenaline and you just run and you get through it. But that is what is made me realize over the last few years that I have a lot of work to do. And Mm. I'm still working on that every day because there is, you know, guilt and, and anxiety and all of those things. 
So, so tell me a little bit about that guilt and anxiety. You have a lot more to do. You said this. So tell me, let's dig a little bit there. What do you have? What more do you have to do? And what does that mean that you feel guilt and anxiety about it? So I just, I, I really have a lot of work to do. I think Um, it is, you know, just a, a journey, but before Jack had gotten diagnosed, I started working at Phoenix Children's Hospital and um, I was on the oncology floor. And so when, as he got better and I was working more, I was obviously working more on the oncology floor. And it was, I think, a blessing because parts of it were really therapeutic for me. I could help these families in a way that I could relate to them where you know other therapists might not be able to. Um, but at the same time, then it became very taxing because I'm watching these families live my worst nightmare. I mean, these there were there were several kids that I worked a long time with who had relapsed or who had died. And I realized just for my heart, it just hit too close to home. And um I thought, well, why do I get to have my kid? You know, like, and I and I'm friends with moms and parents who are watching their kids die. And like, how did we get so I I, like what? Why do I get to keep my child and this mom Mm. doesn't? And Mm. and then you know, just being thankful every day, and so trying to balance. I think feeling like we should be paying it forward because people were did wrap us up and and loved on us so much. And now I'm like, okay, well, he is cancer free, and now I should be doing all these things. And so then I think the next instinct is to immerse yourself in it to help other families. And for me, that turned out to not be a healthy thing. Mm -hmm. I, I just um, realized that it what it's not my time to do that yet. And so being able to be in the NICU where I'm a little farther from it and um, it doesn't affect me personally, I go home at the end of the day and I can be with my kids and, you know, there's sad things that happen there too. Yeah. But um, I just, I know everything can change so quickly and, and just in a heartbeat. And so I, I want to be in a healthy place um, mentally and physically for my kids. And I want them to see a healthy mom. And, mm-hmm. and I think that when people, a lot of people think when the treatment is over and they're not having active cancer in their body anymore, mm-hmm. a lot of people are like, oh, well, you're good. We're good. Everything's right. good. He survived. You survived. We're done. This is good. And, and, mm-hmm. it's, and it's not that way because then I'm in fear every day. I, I asked the doctors, I said, at the end of his treatment, I was like, can you just keep giving him chemo? Mm-hmm. Because I was so scared mm-hmm. of what it was going to look like when he wasn't getting that anymore. And that's not a rational thought. And it's just still, even, you know, five years later, um, there's things that are really hard and he's going to have, you know, long-term health side effects from this for the rest of his life. And the older that he gets, the more scared that I get because I feel in less control of the choices that he's going to be able to make. Yeah. So it just is, it's finding that balance, I think, of, living each day and just embracing and enjoying, you know, life and just 
you know, not forgetting what you went through or what's in the past, but not letting, you know, not being tied to it and um, moving forward too. And I talked with a lot of other cancer moms that I think are in the same boat. Mm. You know, they try to, they try to, and that guilt thing is really common too. And they just, they're trying to, to move on and their kids are moving on because they're happy and living life. And, and it's just, it's, it's a sad, it's sad. And I think that people, when, when Jack got diagnosed, we didn't know that it was such a thing that mm. I didn't think it wasn't something that, you know, I'm kind of a worry war, but it wasn't something that I was like ever worried in my life about that mm. I was going to have a kid that was diagnosed with cancer. Right. Man. So I have never thought of it that way. I've always you know, when someone's declared cancer free, especially a child, it's a day of celebration. And I know it was for you. I know it was. Yes. Yes. But I've never thought of the the after effects of, I guess, survivor's guilt is yeah. kind of what it could be called. That's what I would call it. And I just think that there's, there's just so many things that you don't think about. Mm. And, you know, now he he's got this one kidney. And I I'm like, oh, that, you know, we, we need to put like, I want to just pretty much wrap him in, in bubble wrap yeah. and not let him walk out the door. But <laughs> unfortunately, you can't do that, right? <laughs> right. It's not healthy right. anyways to do that, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. And I mean, these, these treatments are intense and he got, he got a ton of it. And um, his body didn't tolerate it mm -hmm. very well. And they had to really cut the doses for him, mm -hmm. which, you know, is scary too. But um, there's, there's a lot of great supports in place too. There's, you know, clinics and groups and mm -hmm. um, all of those things that, that are there. The social media, you know, being able to connect with other mm -hmm. people in there that weren't there before. And so I'm just working on trying to find the balance, I guess. So, so I know that you mentioned you got so far to go and, and everything. You at first were, for a while, and I don't know how involved you still are, I haven't seen it for a little while, had created a, like a foundation or something uh, for childhood cancer or, or like a movement of some sort. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so we um, really wanted to be able to give back and, and get involved in um, supporting other families because we felt like we were, we were so lucky to get that. So we basically, we, we formed what we called the Action Jackson Justice League. Mm -hmm. And we now, you know, helped to, to we, my husband volunteers um, with the Colton Cal Foundation, which is uh, they offer a night of respite with the bat cave and the ride in the bat car. And he drives mm. the, the bat cycle. Um, and we love them. And uh, Children's Cancer Network has been, you know, a, a savior for our family. They look at, they do a lot with siblings and uh, helping to have fun activities for our older son, also Hope Kids. So we've kind of divided uh, our support and trying to participate in events and volunteer opportunities with a lot of the different organizations that I see still help families uh, at all the different hospitals in, in Phoenix and in Arizona. You also mentioned, Hey, this isn't the time of life to really be diving into that or, or 
something to that effect is something you shared. Tell me, tell me how you find balance now. Yeah, it's a struggle. I mean, I think that it's taking the time actually to make time for what's important. Um, my, my grandmother did pass away about a year ago now. Mm. And, um, and I was looking back one year, I just was in a much darker place. And I think not taking care of myself, um, mm. trying to deal with a lot of the things that I had kind of brushed under the rug in, in dealing with um, Jack's illness and just what happens to your family, you know, when you go through something like that. And I, one big change that I made was leaving QCH because it was too hard. And I just think that really helped me in a lot of ways. Um, I needed a little distance there and I, and I loved everybody there and I love my job there, but I just needed some distance. And so I think really my, my focus has been trying to, to find that balance, making time for things that I want to do that are enjoyable. I think I'm kind of an A type personality. So I'm always like have this plan and, and it's A to B and, you know, I just, I, I want to like have more fun and loosen up a little bit and, and take more time for me, which I think I felt guilty doing before. But really what I realized was when I'm exposing my thing, myself to things that aren't uh, good for me, I'm not happy. Um, my kids see that my husband sees that, you know, it's just not a good, it's not a good place. I think everybody has been there and, um, just, you know, asking for help and really taking the time to figure out what it is that is going to help you, you know? So for me, it was kind of changing some environments, focusing on myself more and not feeling guilty about it because I knew that that would be better for me in the long run. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm getting there. Yeah. So now if you could go back to that day in the emergency room, when the, uh, resident came out and said, Hey, you're going to be admitted. You better start getting ready to come in. What would you tell yourself now? What advice would you give yourself as to how to approach the next, you know, several years of your life to make it as bearable as possible, given the unfortunate circumstances that are starting then? Oh, I think I would just say, hold on, because it is going to be a crazy ride. I think I would encourage myself to, to just be nice to myself and like be kind, because I think that I, through a lot of that, I was probably my own worst enemy in having everything perfect and organized and I got a grasp on everything and I'm handling it all and I'm doing it all and everything is okay. And, you know, everything is in place and it's okay. We're going to do this and we're going to, we're going to, you know, get this kid through treatment and then we're going to be done and we're going to just like my plan. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing with when things happen like that, it's really out of your control and I don't, you know, it's very uncomfortable but I think that I would just try to be less critical, more kind, just kind of try to roll with the punches, I guess, mm. as I would say. Interesting. You, you mentioned you got lots of support from the community, from family, um, from friends. Um, you mentioned the importance of that. Um, was it hard to accept that at first, that, that help? 
or was it you were just like, oh, I'm going to curl up in the corner here. You guys take and, and take care of my son and everybody else take care of everything else. What was your initial reaction with that? Oh, I think you're just kind of in disbelief that not because you don't think that these things can't happen to you, but you just, I thought that I was taking my kid to the doctor for a, a cold or an, a small infection. Right. And then all of a sudden you're in this place where, well, you know, are we going to be able to work or will we have another kid? We have to mm -hmm. function in daily life. Um, and I think that that was what was awesome is that everybody around us really um, stepped up. My husband was coaching baseball and all the other dads were like, nope, you're out. You do what you do. We've got it here, you know, and really just everybody rallied. My, my mom had um, gotten accepted to OT school and she was like, no, you know, maybe I shouldn't do it. And I was like, no, you're going to do it. And we're all going to do this. And it's going to, you know, we are, we're, we're going to make it through. Right. Um, but you know, the, the, a lot of the families that I see now in the NICU, they just, they, they don't have that support. And it's really heartbreaking for me to see because I just think we all need help sometimes. And I, there was just so many eye-opening lessons that this has taught us that, you know, I, I hope will carry over in my kids' lives as they grow up because I want them to see how important that is and and how it matters. All of that really matters, you know, and I think it, that is the, the, the silver lining of the whole thing as I was kind of going through on my path and A to B and, you know, just trying to achieve all of these things and, and just, um, I needed to, I needed kind of a wake up call. I didn't think it was going to be like that, but that we need to spend more time with our kids. We need to slow down. We need to take days off of work and school to play hooky and go do something fun, you know, because this is it, this is, this is it. And so I think that, um, that has been a huge lesson in this. You know, my, my husband, um, started a small business and so he could have more flexible hours and be home with our kids more. And so I think that something like that really teaches you about, uh, how you want to live, you know, the kind of person that you want to be okay. and really what's most important. Mm -hmm. I mean, my meter, I would say, like, I call it my BS meter is like dialed in because I, I don't have time for for negativity or you know things that are not going to better me or better my family or send us in that direction of mm. you know where we want to be. Mm. Well, that's uh, very interesting. Any other words of wisdom or maybe um, uh, mottos that you live your life by that you think are important to share? Oh, I guess I would say, and it comes from probably being an OT, but love what you do and do what you love. Because really, I, I'm so fortunate that I, I have this job that I get to go to every day where, you know, I, I work with incredible people, and I feel valued, and I feel like I'm doing something good. And um, I think if I, if I didn't have that, or, um, you know, I wasn't really paying attention to what made me happy and working on that, I, I wouldn't be in the place where I am today. Mm. Very cool. Now I have 
one more kind of totally off the wall and unrelated question. It's one that I'm interested in um, from pretty much everybody I talk to. Um, have you spent much time on or around boats in your life? Um, a little bit of time, but not a lot because I get crazy motion sickness. Okay, awesome. So do you have a really crazy boat story that you're willing to share? Like maybe you got really motion sickness on the boat or something. <laughs> oh, okay. So we went to Cabo for my cousin's wedding and uh, we did like one of those uh, dinners, you know, with, with a bunch of people on the boat and um, everybody got sick. Oh. Well, most of the women got sick. <laughs> But I was, I want to say, because I was really proud of myself, I was like, I did get sick, but it was at the very end, and I was the one of the last holdouts. <laughs> awesome. So everybody was just green and not... Everyone was sick. Everybody was like at, over an edge. Uh, um, and I think it was people who maybe had been down below before. Uh -huh. So I did learn you really need to stay at the top. Ah. Hmm. How can that apply to life? <laughs> hmm. Right. Keep stay on top. Keep your eyes open to what's going on around you, and maybe uh, you won't uh, get be end up hanging over the edge of the boat too much, huh? <laughs> Correct. Correct. Well, very good. Well, Kelly, is there anything else you feel like you want to share here before we close this up? I don't think so. Thanks for thinking of me. Yeah, this was fun. I I hope that you've um. I hope it's been helpful to you and also enjoyable. Yes, thank you. Well, there you have it. The conversation I had with Kelly Dupes was one that was very powerful and one that was quite enjoyable for me. If you have found this or any other conversation that uh, we've done with the Journey Through Life podcast, please go and look us up on Facebook at JTL Podcast on Facebook and like us and follow us. Also, we're found on Instagram at JTL Podcast. And if you or anyone you know would like to have a recorded conversation with me and perhaps share some of the lessons you learned to leave a sort of a legacy for those who come behind you, please reach out to me at jtlpod.com under the Share Your Journey tab. And we'll schedule a time when we can sit down and have a conversation and put this out there for those who come after you and those who are, who are your friends and family right now. It's really nice to be able to have these types of real conversations so that we can get those lessons out to those around us, those who we love and those who love us. For the first run through of In Their Own Words, if you have any grandparents, parents who have passed on that have a great story to tell, I would love to get that. Go ahead and send that to me through jtlpod.com and we'll add this to the end of another episode. This is a story written by my grandfather, Clyde Taylor Higginson. It's an experience he had when he was a rodeo cowboy. And it's called Cowboy and Rudolph. I'm going to get into a little bit of his twang 
I don't have the same pitch of voice as him. He had a little bit of a high voice, but I'll try and imitate his twang a little bit. Rudolph the Red-Faced Mule Deer had a very horrible experience one dark night in 1949. The moral of this story is for reindeer-type critters. Don't get mixed up with any cowboys. It seems that old Clyde and his Texas buddy Ed had been invited over to the Tooele, Utah for a church benefit rodeo. It will keep us loosened up and in prime shape for the spring rodeos, remarks this half-Indian, half-Irishman. After a rough rattle and ride in Ed's beat-up Ford-panel truck from Orem to Tooele, we felt a few broncs would just be duck soup. When we looked into the pen of broncs we were going to entertain the people with, to our dismay and some chagrin, we viewed a big assortment of Nevada desert wild horses. Those shoot rattlers bruised us pretty good before we could get out of them, and they didn't know what a fence was. But the crowd loved it as they gyrated who-knows-where style across the arena. About the fifth bronc, for me, disaster struck. Sure enough, that desert-raised beast never saw or heeded the arena fence a-coming up. He did a complete somersault over the top, and I did two loops myself and was grateful I had taken a tumbling course at college at Utah State ten years earlier. But he bounced and rolled over the top of me, taking a fair piece of hide, mine, with him. Ed rode four of those desert dogs, got kicked once and stepped on twice and hollered, Hey, when does the fun start, Clyde? After a couple more tame events, colt roping on borrowed horses, and three big jarring rides on two-year-old Holstein steers for the bull riding event, we were ready to call it a very pleasant evening and dragged our hides to the Ford truck, the crowd cheering for the entertainment. As these two bruised and beat cowboys headed home over this rough mountain road on the darkest, moonless night one could imagine, the main event was about to happen. The panel truck bounced over the rocks on a rise of this old mining road and barely negotiated a hairpin turn, with Ed doing his best with that loose steering wheel to keep from going on a shortcut over the boulder-strewn mountainside. Suddenly, on a brushy hillside curve, we ran smack dab into a herd of mule deer. The lights picked up a big six-point buck crossing the road in front of us and then stopped to gaze at this weird object with the bright eyes the ford from 30 yards up the mountain hey clyde there's my winter's meat shouts ed reaching for his 22 rifle and spotlight this was october and the hunting season was in full swing hold the light on him clyde while i plug him between the eyes cowboys didn't seem to care those days how they put meat on the table night or day at the crack of the rifle the buck folded like a pole-axed steer slumping into the chest-high mesquite and sagebrush and deer cover of various sorts with very little clearings. Here's the knife. I'll hold the light and you go clean him out and drag him down off that little hill to the car, Clyde, remarks Ed nonchalantly. Why me, Ed, says I. Because you're in better shape than I am, a sly answer. I struggled up the hill through thick brush, staying on the beam. Finally, there in a small clearing ten feet across lay... Old six-point, apparently zapped. Looked like thirty-inch spread of antlers. I grabbed the horn and slashed his neck to bleed him good. One bad feature. The slash only nicked his hide. Another bad feature. He had a lot of life left in him. As he jumped up on his feet and wailed away at me with his front ones. But beat-up old Clyde was hanging on to that horn like grim death. 
which could happen if I let him go and he sought revenge. He would jump in the air, slashing at me with his sharp hooves, and I would bulldog him to the ground, hoping to get the knife into his throat. He was like a rubber ball the three times I threw him to the ground. About the second dogging job, the lights went out, and the wrestle continued on into the night in total darkness, purely by feel, and that's when my troubles began. I couldn't see the Rudolph-type critter, and was still hoping for him to slow down his gyrations enough for me to plunge the knife into a fatal spot. But no. The next thing I knew, his front feet whammed me square in the chest, knocking me backwards, wrenching my death grip from those fancy antlers. Then this stunned and disappointed cowboy picked himself off the brush-encrusted ground, hearing that wily beast heading for the parts unknown. Old Clyde took a heading on the truck's headlights and slithered bruised and beat, off the mountainside, a wondering what happened to that spotlight. He found his answer as he neared the ford. The gut-wrenching laughter and guffaws pierced the gloom of night as there lay old Ed writhing in high glee on the ground. The spotlight close by. The plug pulled from the cigarette lighter socket as Ed rolled to the ground in gross mirth. Hey, Ed, are you trying to get me killed? I might have won that one if I'd had a little more light. Then Ed got up off the scarred-up earth and got mighty serious. I must have hit him in the horn instead of between the eyes, contemplates Ed. But hey, Clyde, why'd you turn Rudolph loose? Don't you know Marion, Pine Knot, and Rain Cloud may starve this winter without meat in the larder? Just sharpen your knife, Ed. Sharpen your knife. <laughs> that was really fun and brought back a lot of memories to hear the writing of my grandfather, who I haven't heard his voice for 13 plus years. And I really miss that man. He was one that was very full of cowboy wisdom. Now, if you would like any of your ancestors' writings to be read on the end of these podcasts and have it done in their own words, just reach out to me through the website jtlpod.com and I'd be happy to put them into a future episode. Mm-hmm. 